now that the kids are out of the room, I can talk about when kids think they know better now that they're gone. Um, sometimes kids, as you know, uh, think that they know better. And uh, as parents, we can be tempted in two different directions when kids do that, when they're overly confident in themselves. Um, you might take the first option, which would be to give them over to their overconfidence. So something like, you think you know what you're talking about? Well, have at it. Good luck with that. And then you kind of watch things unravel with pity or delight, depending on your maturity. And they uh, hopefully learn the hard way, and that's one tactic. Uh, the second would be to stop them beforehand, Right? either reacting in frustration at this foolishness of their pride or, or taking the time to kind of warn them about the fall that's inevitably coming uh, when they're foolish in their pride. Now, parents, uh, we, are, uh, we are deeply flawed and we are working with very imperfect information, right, as we're trying to assess where our kids are at. And so if human parents react to pride in this way, what might we expect from God? God has no flaws. He never misreads the situation. He knows even the intent of the heart. What would God do in the face of overconfidence and foolish pride? Where well, we are heading back into the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, we haven't been there for some time. So if you remember, 1 Samuel uh, is a book that shows how God installs Israel's king uh, through the appointment of this prophet Samuel. And we left off, as I'm sure you remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, where the people were demanding a king like all the other nations. Do you remember that? And God had appointed Samuel as a prophet. He had replaced the corrupt priest family that was kind of going on. And uh, so Samuel was was getting older in years now and beginning to age, and so... Uh, Israel knew that his sons were not going to fill his shoes very well. They were constantly feeling the pressure of the attacks of the Philistines from the outside, this neighboring people. And so they go to Samuel, they ask for a king, and they want to be just like all the other nations. And Israel is so conceited that they want to dethrone God as their king, thinking that a human one might do a better job of it. And so what is God's reaction going to be to Israel thinking that they know better? What is the right consequence for trying to replace the creator with an impressive creature? Samuel does all that he can. He warns them about the cost of having a king and what it's going to actually look like. He tells them they already have a perfectly good king in God and yet... They insist, and so God actually tells Samuel, give them what they want. So there's some tension left over from chapter 8 in 1 Samuel, where we've got some questions that, have, that go unanswered. God says to go ahead and do it, but then Samuel says to the men of Israel in the last verse of chapter 8, go every man to his city, and we're kind of left wondering, well, how is this going to work? How is God going to appoint this king, or how is Israel going to go about this? And even more so, what's God's attitude towards his people now that they've rejected him as king and they want a different one? Well, as you might expect, and it happens a lot in the Bible, God does not do what you, what you anticipate he's going to do. The boundaries of his grace towards his people are astoundingly broad. So, the answer to the question, how is God going to treat Israel now that they've rejected him as king, is our point for the morning. In your little handout thingy there, it says, Israel's God and king graciously guides the appointment of Prince Saul so that Israel will be rescued from the Philistines. That's kind of textually what happens. A shorter answer would be, he, God keeps bringing about his good plan for his bad people. That's the answer. And when we watch God react this way to Israel, it's going to teach us something about what he's like and how he treats his people when we err and when we go astray, when we're dumb like the Israelites. It's going to help us know how to think 
in the midst of the grief of conviction will know that God is a certain way. So, we're going to read a big chunk of scripture. I'm warning you. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 16. So if you're able to physically stand, that would be great in reverence of God's word. If not, you can revere God's word from sitting down. That's okay too. Uh, but I want to read to us, out of the, uh, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 through 10, 16. We're actually not going to have it up on the screens this morning, so uh, find a Bible, get near someone with a Bible, and I'll read this for us. Here's what it says. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerar, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among all the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who's held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met, a young woman, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry, he has just come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel... Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that's on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat before, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God." Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, 
Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you'll meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that went that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly about the donkeys, that the donkeys had, not been, or had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. You can be seated. We're going to follow this story in four different sections. Um, obviously, it's a pretty big text, so we're going to have to fly a little bit higher above it than normal. Um, so, the four points are there for you. An impressive candidate in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 9. And then three gracious aspects of, of what God does. Gracious sovereignty, gracious communication, and gracious provision. And we'll talk about some implications. You'll note in the beginning of this chapter, we meet this um, impressive candidate. It's connected to their need for a king. You remember that chapter 8, God says to Samuel, we'll make them a king. And now we hear this, this, the next thing we hear is this description of Kish's son, Saul. And he's young, and he's handsome, and his family has money, and he's noticeably taller than everyone else. And you take all that, and what that all means is that Saul is impressive, when you met Saul, you, you saw that he was set apart in some ways. Now, why are we getting a profile of what Saul is like? Think about if you're watching a movie, and the movie starts off with some alien group like preparing up in outer space, preparing to attack planet Earth. Okay, You kind of see that going on. But then the very next scene is this young guy who's like going through special forces training, He's doing all this impressive war stuff, shooting things and blowing things up. His trainers are standing back and they're like admiring what he's like and talking about how he's at the top of his class and they've never seen anyone like him. And you think, why did the movie producer start with this problem of aliens and then, and then shoot over to the, the describing and illustrating the abilities of this young special forces guy? In your head, you can kind of connect that there's storytelling going on. There's a problem that's being proposed, and somehow this young guy is connected to the resolution of this problem of aliens attacking, right? Now, you just you subtly know that because you know how stories work. They're intentional. They're on purpose. So when 1 Samuel chapter 8 ends with, boy, we could really use a king, and chapter 9 starts with this handsome, impressive guy, 
we are thinking, this guy, this son of Kish is related. Maybe this is the guy. We're not told that blatantly, but that's why it's in the text. It sets up some expectation. He's a part of the answer. So that's our impressive candidate. Second is this gracious sovereignty, these arranged circumstances we see in verses 3 through 17. We go straight from hearing about Saul to now looking for donkeys. (laughs) What is going on? And it's a very normal, ordinary type of thing. And they look for the donkeys. They lost the donkeys. Send the son to go find the donkeys. They went here. They couldn't find the donkeys. I mean, it's It's like, why are we talking about donkeys being lost? But now that we've read the whole section and you kind of know what happens, if you look through the rearview mirror at these details, you can see why they're in there, right? God is in these details. And if you look at each part and ask a certain question, you can understand why the author includes such mundane details like looking for donkeys, So in verses 3 through 4, Saul's father asks him to go find him. He takes a servant along, and they look everywhere but can't find him. Why can't they find him? In verse 5, they get to that breaking point. You know, when you're looking for something, and you just sense, like, this has become too important in my life, right? Like, you wouldn't spend all day looking for five bucks because you just, at some point, you're kind of going, okay, when do I give up? And that happens to them when they're in the city of Zuph. Why is it that that happens to them in the city of Zuph? In verses 6 through 10, the servant speaks up. He's like, well, there's this one last-ditch effort, Hail Mary kind of option. I heard about this guy who happens to live in Zuph, who's a man of God that we might want to go ask because he knows a lot of stuff. He always tells the truth. Maybe he'll know where the donkeys are. Why does he think of it then to, to raise that possibility. Saul says, well, we have to have something to bring him. That's the way this thing works. And the text in the original uh, Hebrew is a little more explicit than what we read. But the servant finds this quarter shekel in his pocket. Oh, we could use this to pay him. That shouldn't stop us. Why was the servant unaware of the money until now? So they go to this nearby city, or they seek this man of God out, and they find some women who aren't typically getting water at this time of day, who just happen to know, the same will just happen to come into town, and they happen to know where he's going. But you got to go quickly. How did they happen to find the people who happen to know where this man would be? And it all, see, all these questions come and get answered in verses 15 and 16. When it says, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Oh, that's why all these things are happening. That's why they can't find the donkeys. That's why they land in Zuff. That's why the servant has this question. That's why they find the shekel. That's why they run into these women, because God is up to something. And he has arranged the circumstances to work the way that he desires for them to work. Notice he even tells Samuel the time he's going to come. There's a guy. I'm going to send him. And you don't really know that that's going on. You're just hearing donkeys, you're hearing Zuff, you're hearing cities, you're hearing stuff you don't particularly care about until you realize God is the one who is sending this appointed man. These are not happenstances. These are arranged circumstances. And did you notice in verses 15 and 16 why God is involved still? First, there's three reasons, I think, in these texts why God is still involved. First, he is still their king. Notice what he says. I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince. Over my people. He always calls Saul a prince. And whenever he refers to Israel, he always refers to them as his own in this text. Isn't that interesting? I know that my people think that they're appointing a king, but I'm still their king. I'm appointing a prince as a concession to them, and I'll pick him out. He's still their king. 
He's going to be the one who's anointing this person. God is not threatened. He's not insecure. He is still very much in control, despite what Israel desires. So he is still their king. He is still their savior. Notice why he sends this man. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. What an amazing thing that God is still motivated to spare and save his people after they reject him. He is still interested in their protection. I'm bringing this guy and he'll save their people from the Philistines. Doesn't that sound like Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, I think it is? He shall save their people from their sins. You wonder earlier in chapter 7, it says, the Philistines never again enter in the land of Israel. And, and you wonder, how does that happen? Because God is still their savior. And he's even willing to use a guy like Saul to accomplish the protection of his people. Last and third thing, he is still compassionate. He goes on in verse 16, he says, For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. He never stops watching. He never lacks concern. He never becomes indifferent. He never acts callously towards his people. Never. One commentator says, Yahweh's providence is in the service of his pity. Israel's rejection doesn't paralyze God's providence. Although Israel sees its idolatry in her cry for a king, he also hears her distress in her cry for relief. Israel's stupidity cannot wither Yahweh's compassion. And this is why the word gracious is before each description of what's happening in this text. Because chapter 8 is kind of in the background, right? So he's gracious. it's his gracious sovereignty in arranging these circumstances. God sent him. He's still intimately involved. He doesn't step away like the indifferent, callous parents as make your mess and whatever comes, comes. He stays involved, and his sovereign plan includes Saul. The next thing we see of his grace is that he's gracious in his communication. So not only does he arrange this, he picks the king, in fact, but he's gracious to actually tell the characters in his story what he's doing. So he doesn't leave him in the dark. He's gracious in his communication, and he directs Samuel and Saul in very different ways, you'll notice. So Samuel, he tells him what's going on, right, the day before. He points out to Samuel, hey, this guy coming towards you, that's the guy. Like, very clear instruction for Samuel, okay? And so Samuel prepares this meal, probably as a a way of honoring even Saul when he's coming. He makes all these preparations. Samuel eventually announces to him that he'll be the king. So God's communication to Samuel is very direct and very gracious, and it's like, here's, let me spell it out for you, here's what's going to happen. But with Saul, Saul doesn't know what's going on. He's he's really clueless. And so instead of just like whapping him over the head with a two-by-four saying, hey, you're going to be the king, surprise, it's like this gracious process of leading him along. Don't you love when Saul walks up to Samuel and is like, hey, where does the seer live? (laughs) I mean, he's that clueless. He doesn't know. And it's so unexpected that Saul would be in this role that the people who know him from his hometown of Gibeah Elohim, which is where he lived originally, there's this proverb that start being used in the vernacular of their culture, which is, is Saul among the prophets? It's basically communicating an unexpected outcome, like, I didn't see that one coming is what is meant by, is Saul among the prophets? And Saul is as clueless as his townspeople are. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. He's attending this meal and sitting down in this place of honor and getting this special meat, and he's just kind of like, I was looking for donkeys. (laughs) And now I'm here, you know? But the Lord is like, he's illustrating, this is what it's going to be like, Saul, to be in a place of honor. He's leading him and showing him He leaves these breadcrumbs for him to follow. He brings him into this news gently. The donkeys are fine. Don't worry about those. 
and I'll tell you more tomorrow. He lets him sleep on it right after this weird meal scene. He discloses the news about becoming king privately, not in front of the servant, so that Saul can have time to handle it and deal with it and take it in. You can tell Saul's a little nervous about this news because when his uncle asks at the very end, he says he doesn't say anything about it. And God is just gently revealing and graciously communicating to Saul and Samuel in very different ways, the ways that they need. God even leads Samuel to kind of set up a future appointment. Okay, so in seven days we'll meet again and then I'll tell you what you need to do. You see this gracious communication. And you wonder as Saul kind of slept that night on the roof of Samuel's house, like, you know, my servant described this prophet Samuel as someone who, who, quote, all that he says comes true. All that he says comes true. So we see the grace of God, not only in, in the, how these circumstances are being played out, but in how he's speaking to Samuel and Saul. And ironically, God is prepping the prince that Israel thinks can do a better job than God can. You see how gracious our Lord is? My goodness, if there was ever a time to say, pick whoever you want and, and let it just tank the nation, it's here. But he doesn't do that. But then he doesn't even stop there with gracious communication. He sets up this confirmation process. And he's going to get Saul the resources that he needs from chapter 10, verse 1 uh, through 16. We see, of course, this ceremony in the first part of verse 1 where Samuel finally makes it really, really clear by anointing him with oil. The anointed one is what the word Messiah means kind of uh, small s savior in the Old Testament. And so he's anointed to be prince and he's going to reign and he's going to save them and all these things. But then Samuel says at the second half of verse 1 of chapter 10, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Saul, I know this is a lot to swallow, so I'm going to set up some things to help you know this is really happening. You're going to rule this people. And this is the final act of grace that we see where God confirms his word. There is nothing more sure in all the universe than the word of God. And God sees to it to just do things to confirm, yeah, what I'm saying is really certain. It's really going to happen. And so he gives different signs. These signs are both a confirmation that what's happening is really happening, and there are also the resources that Saul's going to need. So we see this, the confirmation aspect where he lists the different things that are going to happen. You're going to run into the two guys, and by Rachel's tomb, they're going to talk to you about the donkeys. And you're going to run into the three guys at this place, and they're going to give you bread because you're already out of it. Remember, they didn't have anything to pay the prophet. And then you'll meet some prophets in your hometown, and you'll prophesy with them, and I love what one commentator says about these predictive prophecies. He says that they aren't, quote, like bland generalizations like the little quips from a fortune cookie. They're like specific, detailed thing. When you get to this spot, this is what's going to happen. Here's the number of people. Here's what they're going to say. I mean, this is incredible stuff. As, he, as Saul's going back, you could almost see him going, wow, this God knows what he's doing. How does he do this? And sure enough, in chapter 10, verse 9, it confirms, and all these signs came to pass that day. So the confirmation occurs, but then these resources, these supernatural resources come to Saul to accomplish what God has called him to do. In verse 9, the amazing passage, chapter 10, verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. God creates a home in Saul where the Spirit of God can reside in some way so that he will be open to the things that God wants him to do. In verse 6, it described him as turning into another man. 
Think about this. Saul, you are so ill-equipped for this job that God will need to start over with you. And he's going to come, and he's going to make you into another person. He's going to give you a new heart, which just shines so much light on Israel's desire for Saul and for a king, right? I mean, God has to work with this concession in a way where his will is going to be done. And this kind of supernatural surgery can't be done by anyone but God, right? It's remarkable to hear about you know, this, the stories of the care that, that the camels have received and just the technology of the cardiac units and all this stuff. But no one can do this but God. No one can reorder the desires and the, the loves of a person's heart other than God. And so God reshapes him. He, he restores what's broken and creates room so that he'll yield. I mean, think about, could anyone say to another person, I will turn you into another person. I will give you another heart. We can hardly keep the physical muscle working in the human being. And here God says, yeah, we're going to need to do some work here, Saul, before you're ready for this. Now, we're not sure of the scope of what's gone on here. It seems like something that's different than what the new covenant is describing when it's a heart of flesh. Because we know, if you know the story of Saul, he ends up fighting the purposes of God and going against what God wants later in his life. So I don't think we have the same sense of the indwelling Holy Spirit Uh, as we would talk about in New Testament terms here, we have some kind of provision to allow Saul to lead in the way that God wants him to lead. So the point of this is not to get down into the weeds on that. Well, what exactly is that? Because the text doesn't say. It's to say God has graciously provided the tools that Saul needs to be this prince for a while. Okay, So it's this gracious confirmation, this gracious provision So back to our question, how is God going to treat Israel? What's his attitude going to be towards them? Is he going to be cold and sit back and watch them implode? Israel's God and king graciously guides the appointment of Prince Saul so that Israel will be rescued from the Philistines. He graciously arranges the circumstances. He graciously directs them through his word. He graciously provides the supernatural resources necessary. Do you see what this text is saying? God is gracious towards his people, even when they disobey him. And as a person who disobeys God, that's good to hear, isn't it? That God would be this way consistently towards his people. So let's think about two implications. I want to ask a couple of questions and then try to tease out some of these implications for us. The first question is, what's the end result of all this work that God does in these chapters? It seems like there there should be long-lasting effects for all the effort that God is putting towards making Saul prince of Israel. And Saul kills a lot of Philistines and helps establish the kingship of Israel and all this stuff, but there are surprisingly little results. And if you follow this, and we will, as impressive as a start as Saul gets, he ends his rule with a fantastically unimpressive thud. I mean, it's depressing when you get, you're just like, Saul, stop. That's embarrassing. Get out of the way. Like, that's how you feel when you read this text. So Saul not only continually disregards God's instruction, he ends up fighting the purposes of God, and if he is all of Israel's hope, Israel's in a heap of trouble. So the question is, why all this trouble if it's going to end in disaster, right? To that we say God has his purposes to protect them from the Philistines, like we said, to line up the next guy, which will eventually be David, or there will be another massive promise that will come that will not be fulfilled by David's lineage and by the kings that follow. Ultimately, the story of Saul adds weight to the words from Psalm 146.3, which says, Put not your trust in princes, 
in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. See, God gave Israel exactly what they wanted, and it didn't pan out. Fortunately, God's plan in giving them that, what they mistakenly asked for, was included in his larger plan to bring the king who would actually be what Israel needed. But don't miss this. Don't miss that we pretend to be experts in what we need. When here is a case in point. When this nation thought they were a prince away from paradise, and all it did was expose how incapable they are. That's a message for us. It shows us the ceiling of human potential, doesn't it? It shows us the limitation of our understanding. It shows us that what we want isn't often what we need. It shows us that God is gracious to us even when we're really dumb. So, it shows us how incapable we are. God gave them what they wanted, and yet God, um, even though he gave them what they wanted in this prince, God had to arrange the meeting, explain what to do, and confirm what he said, and then he had to transform the heart of Saul and had to take, put the spirit in him to set up shops so he could do what he needed. And I mean, it just shows us how small and how incapable we are. So what does that mean? People who make Christianity out to be this way that you can be empowered and release your potential need to read this text. They are not relaying to you what God says. The very starting point of the message of Christianity is blatant, raw, confessed need. Need. And if you hear someone preaching on the radio or on the TV and all they're talking about is what you can do and what you can be unleashed to do, turn it off. The message of the Bible does not support that. Now, with the Holy Spirit and being submissive to the will of God and all those things, we can be useful and we can be effective for his kingdom. That's true. But the starting point of the gospel is that you and I are not enough. We are not righteous enough. We are not loving enough. We aren't spiritual enough. We aren't moral enough. The starting place of historic biblical Christianity is we aren't and we don't and we can't. The problem of rebellious independence towards God, it's a real problem. And our alertness to that problem will determine whether or not your life will do what it's created to do and where you will spend eternity. So friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, do you see in this text God's gracious reminder of how incapable and unimpressive we are? You see, you and I, we lack, we, we share in Israel's lack of foresight. We share in Saul's lack of self-understanding. But the good news of the gospel is that though we are not enough, there is someone who is. But don't miss that first implication that you and I are incapable. The second implication or the second question I want to raise is what does this tell us about how God operates today? What does this tell us about how God operates today? We see this gracious demeanor in God, even towards disobedient people. And so the question is, is he still this way? So let's look at a few of these phrases. Gracious sovereignty And look at that phrase in light of the good news of Jesus. Does God still generously arrange the circumstances of his undeserving people? And how can we know that God continues to work in that way so that we can be confident even when we're blind to what he's doing? When we're like Saul, sitting at the table going, I don't quite know what's happening around me. Well, God did arrange for the coming of a true king, God the Son, king of all creation. He entered into humanity. He took on human flesh. He was born in Bethlehem. He lived as a carpenter's son. He began his appointed ministry as an an adult. And for three years, he preached and healed and discipled, revealing God's glory and God's plan. And here's how the apostles describe it in regards to this gracious sovereignty. 
They're preaching and they say, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, all the princes that were previous to the king of kings fell, and they fall before this king Jesus. Jesus was innocent and was yet punished for our sins. And because Jesus is God, his sacrifice is able to save any who come to him. And because Jesus is man, his sacrifice is able to actually save men and women. He is uniquely qualified to be the savior that Saul was not. And God has provided confirmation of this gracious arrangement by allowing him to rise from the dead. Physically and historically risen from the dead, demonstrating that our ultimate enemy of sin and death have been conquered. Yes, God is still gracious in the arrangement of human history and in the arrangement of our lives because he did what he did with his son Jesus. The sovereign grace of God has led you here. Think of this, that God's grace is evident in the sovereign arrangement of your life. If you're not a Christian, you are here in proximity to the good news message that could forever change your life and eternal destiny. Now you're there. How did that happen? Like Saul, you might not have understood that while you're seeking something entirely different, God is seeking you out. And whatever else you may have started seeking today... You can find Christ. You can find life in him that will last forever. Will you turn now from your sinful independence and trust in God's pre-planned way of making you right with him through Jesus? Will you respond to that because you found yourself sitting in this room hearing this message that now all of a sudden makes sense? If you're a Christian, I want you to stop and just realize that that where you were sitting in the second that you are in right now is sovereignly arranged. Which means that the painful and the difficult circumstances that you're in that you don't fully understand are included in the larger purposes of God. They are. He is up to something. Nothing is wasted. Nothing has snuck in. Nothing is absent of God's gracious purpose. Nothing is waiting unread in his email box. No prayer has gone unheard. No cry has been ignored. No plea has gone unconsidered. All of it's heard. All of it's known. And all of it is incorporated into this meticulous plan that at the end of our lives and at the end of human history, we will all look at and say, that was good that he did it that way. That's what's true right now as you sit here. Does that help you interpret your lives? To see God working behind the scenes in the life of Saul and Israel. Imagine each of our lives as a line. A single line being bent this way and, and tucked that way. And This line is in the hands of an artist who who takes different types of turns and sharp and smooth and sometimes it's thick and sometimes it's thin and we all start and we all stop. It's often hard to tell what the artist is doing when he's drawing our individual line. You intersect with other lines along the way on their course and you envy them or look down on them or are helped by your interaction with them and, and one day the artist will stop drawing and will stand back and will see this larger portrait We'll see how these billions of lines came together to provide the detail and the nuance of God's glory and God's beauty. And we'll see the whole thing. We'll feel the privilege of being used to draw something bigger. And all the pain and the ambiguity and the, the confusion of life will be forgotten. Do you see that his sovereign rule is guided by his grace. It's good to say that God is sovereign. That's true. But we have to include in that that his, his mercy and his grace influence that sovereignty as well. They're not separate things. The second phrase 
that I want to pick back up on in light of the gospel is this idea of gracious communication and direction. And one of the downsides of the analogy of the artist is that the artist actually talks with us as he draws our lives. He reassures us and he guides us and he includes us even in some aspects of what he's doing and what he's drawing. But not all. Can you relate to Saul in this story? Constantly catching up, confused, sitting at the table with the best portion, wondering how you ended up here and what you were doing there. And as he, as God gently led Saul, as he spoke to him, and think about all-knowing, all-wise God. Think about all the things that he could say to us that would be true, but he doesn't say because he knows that they would crush us. Or he knows that it's not time yet. See, God is gracious in his communication to us. You and I think that we know exactly what a person needs, and we say way more than we should, right? And God does know everything, and he doesn't say everything all the time in one sitting. He's careful to encourage and confirm as he goes. He understands the suddenness of these moves, and and he's gracious in how he does this. God has spoken to us through his word. He's, He's shown us his glory in his son, and And the Holy Spirit allows for this word to be clear and the Son to be seen as glorious. God is gracious to talk to us and he continues to be gracious. And so the question is, are you pursuing God's gracious voice? Are you seeking his will and his word? God has given us a sufficiently clear message. I know we'd like more information from him, but he's given us a sufficiently clear message. Are you hearing what you can hear? Of God's voice. He's a gracious communicator. We have an advantage over the situation with Saul where we know that the indwelling spirit is a seal. It's a permanent residence that the Holy Spirit has within us. And we know this change of heart. We talked about that in Deuteronomy. Remember that? How God brings about this change of heart, this renewed person that he he's forming in us so that's just to say that because God is gracious in his communication we, we ought to want to hear his voice and when we when we do we need to be able to discern other types of, of of voices in our heads that are not in line with this gracious communication we see from God it doesn't mean that God's always just going to encourage us and pat us on the back and say, way to go. It means if we're in sin, it means he'll correct us and he'll confront us and expose what we're like. But God is gracious in his communication. Just some closing questions and some thoughts. As you, as you think about this text this week, as you think about what we've been talking about, A few questions to talk over lunch or to just spend maybe in a quiet time tomorrow morning. Number one, is, is it that God's sovereign control of all things is influenced by his grace? Do we understand and are we connecting God's sovereignty with his grace? And see how those things influence each other and work together. Maybe you need to spend some time thinking about that. Maybe you've, you agree that God is sovereign, but you're not happy about it. You know? And you don't quite get how it works. And the fact that he's sovereign is actually a stumbling point to you because you don't see how it's going to be good. And reflecting on how his sovereign action in the scriptures is good and results in good might help that skepticism of your heart. Maybe we need to be thinking about how God continues to be gracious to us even when we're in the wrong. And this is amazing about our God, isn't it? Doesn't this set him apart from every other God? Even in our rebellion, that he's gracious to us. How often do we sin and we start thinking differently about the character of God and his attitude towards us and his motives towards us and, and his will and we start adding in gray tones 
for what God is like and what God is doing. And we need to be able in that moment to identify that that's the work of the enemy. That's the voice in the garden. Are you sure God is really after your good? Are you sure that's what he wants? It seems like he's keeping stuff from you, right? Isn't that the trunk of every temptation that we have is to doubt the character and the will of God? So maybe it's, it's by faith confessing what the Bible confesses about God even when you don't understand how he can be that way. Like seriously, I've, I've sinned for the thousandth time in this area. How could he be this way? But just because your mind doesn't compute that doesn't mean it's not true. And I think it's actually that, that grace and that understanding of God's ability to push through and to continue to persist and even accomplish his will through our disobedience. That's part of what brings us back to repentance. It's part of what brings us life again. So those are just some questions. It's my prayer that God will stir these things in us this week, will help us to um, approach him appropriately uh, in these ways and in light of what he's really like. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are glorious. You're perfect. You do everything you say. When you came to this earth and, and you obeyed and you lived in reliance on the Holy Spirit and in submission to your Father, God, you did not deserve what came to you. And yet, Father, it's been the confession of the church for thousands of years that though you did not deserve the punishment for our sins, you took it. And you absorbed the wrath of God towards the sins of God's people. And you... We're victorious over that sin through the resurrection. And now, because we are united with you by faith, for those who are, we can be victorious. We can believe the kinds of statements that the Bible says about your grace because of what you've accomplished on the cross and the empty tomb. And so, God, I pray, I beg you to, to instruct our hearts to see that you are gracious persistently, stubbornly gracious towards your people. And may we include ourselves in that. May that not create a, a laxity towards sin. We know the Bible says that that's not a biblical result of pondering God's grace. But, but God, I pray that that, that characteristic and that, that overlap of sovereignty and grace would just shoot through our hearts this week. It would change the way we approach our sin. We'd be quicker to repent because of knowing you're like this. We'd be quicker to forgive knowing that you're like this. God, lead us in this way. We need your help. And we thank you that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit who's turned us into new people. Help us by your grace, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.